Five by Fifteen Vancouver features five stellar speakers speaking for fifteen minutes each on a topic they're passionate about. Each fifteen-minute episode is a glimpse into a world. Five by Fifteen Vancouver was presented by SFU Library, supported by SFU Publishing, and created in association with Five by Fifteen, a global speaker series. Special thanks to our founding partner, Simon Fraser University, major partners, Langara College and University of British Columbia. Media partners, the Georgia Strait, CBC and Spice Radio, and our funders, Government of Canada, City of Vancouver, Vancouver Foundation, and British Columbia Arts Council. Welcome to 5 by 15 Vancouver. Eden Robinson is a Heisler Heiltsuk author who grew up in Heisler, British Columbia. Her first book, Trap Lines, a collection of short stories, won the Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize and was a New York Times Notable Book of the Year in 1998. Monkey Beach, her first novel, was shortlisted for both the Giller Prize and the Governor General's Literary Award for Fiction in 2000 and won the BC Book Prize's Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Her novel Son of a Trickster was shortlisted for the Giller Prize. At 5x15 Vancouver, she talks about Tricksters Forever. Thank you. Yes! Yo, Estopa, Ethan Robinson, Nuba. Uh, it is always a pleasure and a delight to be here on the territory of the Tsleil-Waututh, the Squamish, Mumasqueam. Uh, your lands are beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for the ability to, you know, for us to be here and to gather on it. Uh, my dad is Heisla. My mom is Halsek. I grew up in my dad's reserve of Kitimat Village. Uh, it's 500 miles north, which sounds like it should be the, the furthest north you can go, but it's actually not. It's about halfway up the province. So where the Alaska Panhandle comes down into BC, at the bottom of it, uh, our reserve is about an hour's drive away from there. Uh, uh, technically, both of my, uh, both of my families come from matrilineal cultures, so uh, I should be Eagle Clan because my mom is Eagle Clan, but my dad, uh, my dad's family uh, adopted me and my sister into the two beavers sharing at the Tree of Life when I was 10 years old. Uh, so I grew up in the Heisler culture. And um, there are about 500 First Nations on Turtle Island or North America. Uh, 60 of those uh, live in BC, in BC. And from Alaska down to Washington, 30 of those nations are Palachi nations. Uh, the big division between the 30 nations are uh, the, the nations that Palachi in the Northern style and the potluck, and you know, from around the Vancouver area, especially around Vancouver Island, uh, they call it in the southern style. <laughs> uh, and uh, people find it confusing when they come to BC because if you're from Ontario, like there's only a, a few different nations to remember. But here, uh, we love complexity, we love the gray areas. So there's, like, for instance, the Shikwetma have like 17 different reserves uh, and they have like one overarching like organizing like band system. Uh, the Heisman 
aren't that complicated. We only have three. Uh, and we've all amalgamated onto one reserve. But uh, uh, I've written uh, like a book that was set in Kinemat called Mikey Beach. And <laughs> oh, that was, it came out 20 years ago. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm still going away for that. Um, and uh, my most recent book, uh, I've been writing a trickster trilogy. And our trickster is Weekend. And uh, Weekend is the transforming raven. And I've always thought of writers as tricksters. But when I was talking to my aunties, I began to see that, no, we're actually more like Duhaba. So, uh, when you're talking about like the soothsayers and oracles, the Duhaba, uh, we're more of our, the Heisla astronomers. So, uh, the, the main reserve where I live is Samotsa, and it, it, that means uh, Snag Beach. Uh, <laughs> uh, in in power culture, to snag is to hook up. Um, so I always thought that would be an amazing name for like a an indigenous soap opera. <laughs> uh, so so Snag Beach is on the west side of this uh, fjord. It it goes inland seventy miles. It's a deep sea channel. And uh, it's uh, it's framed by granite mountains with the glaciated rounded tops. Uh, so it's granite mountains, and then it's the ocean. And Smotsa is like on a, a kind of alluvial flat. So uh, when we have tsunami warnings, we're like half a foot above sea level. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I found that funny. <laughs> I'm kind of a dark sense of humor. Um, but, the, but the whole, uh, you know, there are six mountains on the other side of the channel that form the Heisley calendar. Uh, if you look south down the channel, there's a, there's a large triangular shaped mountain called Kawaswa, which is the mountain in the center. And just to the east of it is um, the, the first mountain in the, in the calendar. It's Chundish. And Chundish uh, has a, just a beautiful, like, sort of ice cream shaped top. And there's like a, a triangle, uh, and it's dark. And that is, it used to be a shaman's cave. And above it is a, a very old tree. So, on the winter solstice, uh, if the sun sets on this side of the tree, that means that the spring is going to be uh, very late, cold and rainy. And if it sets on that side of the tree, it's going to be like a long, lush, early, warm spring. Um, if it sets on the tree, it's going to be normal. So, uh, so the people in charge of watching where the sun would set, where the Dukala, which is literally the, the watchers of the setting sun. And um, each clan had their own Dukala. And at sunset, they would all gather on the beach in front of the, the calendar rock. 
So the calendar rock was uh, like a one-ton piece of granite with petroglyphs on the top. And the most important petroglyph was the sun face. And each of the rays pointed to a different part of the, of the Heisley calendar. So from the winter solstice, um, there, there were a couple of important points, but the most important point of all was the the Jachun uh, the Jachun Doa. Um, so when the sun set on the bow of the Ulakin canoe, that meant we had to break winter camp and go up to our Ulakin camps. And each clan had their own their own wawe, their own place where they uh, set up camp to get Ulakins. And um, you know, because they were because they were the Dufala were all from different clans. When they would gather there uh, at sunset, they would argue. And my great my great grandfather was a Dufala, and he was uh, he built the first general store, and he um, he he built it near the calendar rock, and he put a window in the back. So in the winter they wouldn't have to go outside. <laughs> and my dad remembers listening to them argue, um, and that was just one of my uh, favorite stories that he would tell me of them. Uh, and when I think of my role as a writer, I used to tell people that you know writers are tricksters, but. Um, you know, I think I think we're more like trying to place a novelist into our world uh, is difficult because we we weaponized our stories. Um, uh, the all of the polishing cultures are hierarchical, so you were you're born into your status. Uh, for instance, my name is is a good name. Uh, it's, but it's not, you know, that good. <laughs> I think Fergie <laughs> rather than Diana. <laughs> so, you know, um, if my cousins who have the big names, the noble names, uh, they come with a lot of uh, a lot of rights, uh, but they also come with a lot of responsibilities. Uh, and I, I'm very happy to have, a, you know, not such a big name because I'm a horrible event planner. <laughs> um, and if you've ever held a college, it's it's like a mix of a very large wedding and a very large conference, uh, but with clan politics mixed in. So I just, you know, um, so if I wanted, okay, I have to step back a bit. Um, so in the way that we proved our rank was with our stories, our songs, and our dances. So when you hear people talking about potlatches, it wasn't just a big feast. Um, it was, it was a, a, a legal event. It was a spiritual event. It was a cultural event. It was all of those things mixed into like one long, sort of, uh, you know, wedding slash conference. So it would be uh, some, the potlatches for the big names would last for a week. Uh, so <laughs> you, you could stay in the longhouse for 
uh, you know, 24 hours at a time. Um, and all of those songs and dances and stories that were told at the potlatch, uh, those stories proved the rank or the status of the people that were throwing the potlatch. And they belonged to those people. So uh, if I wanted to tell one of those stories, uh, I would have to pay high slow copyright, which is a feast. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I don't have the rank to throw a potlatch, um, so I would have to attach my potlatch business to someone else's potlatch, which is you know a, a level of diplomacy that I, I I'm nowhere near. And so I those are the those are the, what I consider the formal oral stories. Like they have a very specific purpose. They have a very um, you know they are a part of our most sacred culture. Uh, so when I'm writing fiction, I don't go anywhere near those. <laughs> I tend to stick with the informal stories. And those stories are the stories like the trickster stories. Uh, these are the stories that we would usually tell kids, like to teach them our nuyum, our, our handsome way of living. Uh, this is what good people do. And we get uh, taught us this by breaking all the rules. And when I was growing up, after dinner, uh, we'd all gather at the table, and I come from a family of storytellers, and they would tell trickster stories all night, and they would get uh, they would get really competitive because we didn't really fight. Uh, we fought with stories and songs and dances, so it was very competitive. And they would, the stories would get wilder and funnier and faster. And uh, it was just so much fun. Uh, so when my, when my dad was trying to tell my niece and nephew uh, trickster stories, he was, he was giving them some of his funniest stories, but they'd grown up in Ontario, so they, they didn't understand the context. And I found that really sad, so I decided to write a short story telling uh, my version of a trickster story. And uh, it turned into three novels. <laughs> <laughs> Conversations at home, um, like when I was at the elder center, uh, when you know they were debating the role of literature in, in oral culture, uh, and they were doing it in front of me. <laughs> and there was like a, there was a, a totem pole that was put up, and the artist did it in a southern style. So the, the big difference between northern and southern totem poles is that southern totem poles are completely painted, and northern totem poles are usually quite bare, uh, with usually just black or red, but he'd done his entire pole a, a kind of sort of buttery yellow. And then you know, did, you know he, was, he was playing with color. 
Uh, and one of the elders who was defending me was saying, you know, it's like that totem pole. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre. <laughs> but you get used to it. <laughs> so I was, you know, kind of, you know, happy that she was coming to my defense. But, uh, but I think, you know, the way that novels tell stories is very different from the way that my community tells stories. And um, I, so I don't think the trickster analogy for writers would be accurate. I think of myself more as a duhala. Like the, the trickster is a, a singular character. Um, there he is, he's, you know, he's a bragger. He's a little selfish, you know, the things that he does that are good, he does mostly by accident. Um, and he's, you know, he's very uh, alone. And when I think of a writer, you know, we are creating. But I think of myself as someone who's looking at events and interpreting them. But it's not a, but it's not a singular interpretation. I have a, a community of writers who are trying to do the same thing. Um, and, oh, oh, that was really fast. <laughs> Thank you so much.